The Story of Waze is a pretty interesting app. In 2006, it was started as a community project called Free Map Israel. So it was going to crowdsource a digital database, a free digital database of a map of Israel. And in 2008, it was formed to commercialize as Waze. And in 2010, they raised the first 25 million of funding. And in 2011, they were at 80 people expanding into the US. 2012, they began to monetize by offering resellers and advertisers a place to advertise. And then in 2013, they started winning some awards. And by June 2013, they were bought for 966 million. The 100 employees of Waze received about 1.2 million on average, which is a pretty solid number. This was only possible because they had no choice but to develop a successful crowdsourcing model, which they explain here. You take a step back and think about our network effect, right? There are a few different things we needed. First thing we needed was a map. And for that, we needed a small number of highly engaged users to spend hours working with us building the map. Could you explain that for a second? Because I'm not sure that people actually know what was the source of the Waze maps. People kind of thought that it all came from the same place and Waze was different. So, you know, let's take Israel as an example, just because that's where we started, right? When we started out, the mapping world, there was a duopoly in the world. There was Navtech and Teleatlas. And Navtech was bought by Nokia and Teleatlas was bought by TomTom. Those were the two maps of the world. There was no Google Maps. There was no Apple Maps. That was it. And when you offered a navigation service, the most expensive component of your service was the license to the map, more than marketing and distribution and hardware and anything else, because it was a duopoly. Israel had its version of that, a company called Mapa, which was the map of Israel. And so our thesis was that we could build maps instead of having thousands of trucks driving every road in the world every day and thousands of employees, et cetera, we could do this with a combination of volunteers and GPS chips and cell phones. That was our bet which was pretty radical at the time. And so to start out the service, what we need is a group of people to come in. And like with Wikipedia, when you go in and you build a new entry about a subject that you know about, we had the same thing we needed to be done with the maps. So if you were the first user in a country and you installed Waze, the map would be empty, be a blank canvas. You'd start driving, your icon would turn into this road roller, like what you see paving roads, and start paving a road that you'd see being created behind you. And that was the first road in that country. And as you drove more and more and more of these roads began connecting, right? And we combined that with a really fun gamification experience, et cetera, and people really got into it. But no utility for the users at that point. They're just contributing. Oh, nothing, okay? But if you were the first one to create a road, you got a lot of points for that. But that was creating this geometric road. You then need to go online to our editor, which is a web-based application from your desktop or laptop, not from your phone. And you'd need to begin giving a name to the road. And you'd need to play with the geometries a bit because the GPS reading wasn't accurate enough. And you need to connect two roads together as an intersection about, do you have a right turn or not? And is it one way? Is it two way? What city is this road part of, et cetera? So there's a lot of metadata you'd have to add in. To do this, we needed a relatively small number of highly engaged users that would do it with us, right? And then they build out this grid of the network. Now, the second stage, once you have a grid, and in some countries, say in the US, there's a map that the Census Bureau puts out, which is a okay map for Tiger. It's every company uses it to start, but it's not a navigable map. It's missing data, et cetera. So if we could, we use third-party data as a base. But for us, owning the data was always critical. So we would not touch data that we didn't have full ownership of. So now you have this grid. Now you need a lot of people, more people, to basically drive on this grid. Because as they drive, we're learning directions, we're learning speeds. We begin building an historical database of speeds. How long does it take to drive each segment? So for that, you need more users who are driving around still getting no value. right? And so for that, we built a gamification platform. 
using points and virtual goods and all kinds of stuff to allow a larger percent of users to come and play. So if you can imagine the traditional social media statistics of 1% create... 990, yep. The 1990, 11089, depending who you ask. So for us, the 1% were the users who created the map. And these were the, our editors. The 10% were the users who reported because they're the ones who were more engaged, not engaged enough to actually go and edit things on their computer. But while they were driving, they were engaged, they'd report traffic, they'd report policemen, they would drive around. And as they're driving, we're collecting their GPS data automatically from their phone. So that GPS data is our raw material that our algorithms and people can then analyze to understand speeds, directions, etc. So that was kind of the second stage. Then the third stage, and that stage also built up a historical database of speeds. How many users are we talking about for the second stage for a place like Israel, which is like a small state in the United States? So it's hard to say because it's a combination of a variety of factors. One is how much do they drive, right? Yep. How, how active they are. But also it's what are the alternatives? So, for example, we have a huge community in Iran which is funny because we're not allowed to support them or talk to them, right? There's embargo against Iran. Obviously, Israel and Iran have questionable relationships and the Iranian government has tried to block ways there multiple times. But because there aren't any good navigation apps there, the Iranian people got together and they built the map themselves and they've done everything from scratch. We did nothing there. We're not allowed to, right? So we did nothing there. They've done everything themselves. And so because there's nothing else there that even a what we would call a poor map in the West for them was a really big upgrade. And so they started using it more and more and they got better and better. And today it's by far the best map to use there. Same thing happened here. So in the question of what's good enough is a function of what's the competition. You know, there's a famous joke that you're being chased by a bear in the forest. You don't need to run faster than the bear. You need to run faster than your friend. Same thing here. As long as you're doing better than what they have, then it's good enough and people will use it. So for Germany, you would need to have an extremely high quality 3D embedded in the car map. And for Brazil, as long as you could tell people how to get there, it would be a huge improvement, right? So really varied. But if you thought about how the app grew, it started out with building the network, then building the speeds and the data on it. And then as more people came in, the real-time traffic component began reaching that point where people who joined didn't even know there was a community behind it. And so we had to manage different countries in different uh, maturity states. But it also meant a question of where do we invest our resources in terms of marketing, et cetera, and partnerships. It doesn't make sense to do that when you're not ready for the consumers, when you're building. Because there's the early adopters and it's a different conversation. When you're ready to go mainstream, it's a completely different discussion and a different set of criteria that you're looking at. But that's obviously later on in the maturity of the country. So what I want to state that really resonates with me is the fact that you've been basically thinking about your 1990 or 11089, not just in terms of understanding your users, but actually in terms of what you're asking of them and the product that you're actually building for them, which I think many companies are missing. Many companies are trying to look at this just as a way to understand their user behaviors rather than harness this and understand that there's going to be 1% of the users that are going to be willing to make a lot more than others. They're going to be willing to contribute a lot more. All you need to do is give them the tools and the incentives to to do that, there's going to be the 9 or 10% that are going to be willing to be more involved. And you need to just give them the way to be more involved and contribute more, not as much as the first group, but still. And then there's going to be the rest of it. And you need a, basically a different product for each one of them if you want to get the most out of each one of them. And that really resonates with me. Yeah, I'll give you some examples. Our first versions of our app were much closer to, call it, more traditional GPS applications. Not in the way it looked, but in terms of it would tell you if you're disconnected from the network or not, and the strength of the GPS signal, and the direction that you're driving, and all kinds of things that for early adopters is very important. Now, early adopters, 
like to find things that are broken. They want to find things that are broken. They want to complain and then see that it's fixed. They want to be the first one to find the bug. That's a very different relationship than when you're ready to go to mass market, where we basically smoothed the app, made it much more fun and clean and took out a lot of that functionality, which pissed off our core users, right? But again, for a new consumer, it didn't matter, right? He didn't care what the strength of the GPS signal was, but for an early adopter, it did. So that clarity at every stage of your company to know exactly who you're targeting. When you're targeting early adopters, you don't need your product to be super smooth and clean. You're creating the wrong impression. If you have a super smooth, clean, beautiful product that just doesn't work, right? You're going to disappoint a lot of people. If you have a product that's kind of broken and janky, but has a lot of functionality and you're targeting early adopters who are going to help you make it better, you know, they're going to see how they're impacting the product. That's very important for them. So again, that clarity of who the user is that you're looking at, what's the problem you're solving for that user? What's the emotional experience you're creating for that user? What's that wow moment that the user is going to be so excited? For us, seeing another Wazer was a wow moment. People would go crazy when it happened. Today, that's not a relevant experience because obviously there are too many users. All those things, knowing at every stage of your company who you are, What's the most important thing at this stage? Having that vision in terms of that helps you prioritize and having that KPI that's relevant for the stage that you're in, right? Like retention KPIs didn't make sense in the beginning because we had very, very high retention from a fraction of the users and no retention for most of the users because the project didn't work, right? But that didn't matter in that sense because we were targeting those early adopters that are helping us build the map. This interview was done with Noam Bardin, who is one of Waze's CEO and was on the NFX podcast, which studies network effects, which is what NFX stands for. And I think crowdsourcing is one of those really, really difficult to get going. But once you get going, it's very capital efficient network effects. And I think it's just worth studying.